0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to Haggai. We're going to try to cover chapter one this morning. Now, even though it doesn't seem like a a big shift from Zephaniah to Haggai, we actually enter into our first post exilic prophecy when we change from Zephaniah to Haggai. So, Zephaniah was preaching still before the exile. And then we jump to Haggai, and it's a completely different audience. Now we're back in the land. So I want to take just a few moments here and remind ourselves of what's happened in this time. And I thought while I was at it, if I'm going to do a history lesson, I'd just take a big step back and start from the very beginning and kind of think through what's happened in the Old Testament. There's not going to be a quiz afterwards, um, but this might feel a little bit like a New Testament survey class for a second. The book of Genesis... Has four events and four people. Four events are creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. Creation occurs around 4004 BC, the falls immediately afterward. The flood and Babel were not, they're, they're harder to date. But then we get to the four people that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and his brothers. We know Abraham was born more or less in 2166 BC. And by the end of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers are down in Egypt, right? God promises to Abraham that his descendants are going to be in Egypt for 430 years. And so it's in 1446 B.C. that Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, the plagues, crossing of the Red Sea. But they're disobedient. They don't enter into the land. And so they wander around in the desert for 40 years. That brings us to 1406 B.C. when Joshua leads the people of Israel into the land in the conquest. They don't kick all the Canaanites out. And they enter into this Difficult, dark stage of the judges that lasts around 350 years, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, until God raises up Samuel, who anoints Saul as the first king of over all of Israel, and that united monarchy lasts 120 years. All of my dates here are kind of more or less. Mussolini's in Spanish. The 120 years is divided up into three. You have 40 years for King Saul, 40 years for King David, and 40 years for King Solomon. When Solomon dies, the kingdom is torn into two in 931 BC. You have 10 tribes up in the north with Jeroboam, and you have two tribes in the south with Rehoboam, Judah, and Benjamin. Focusing on the north for a second, you have these 10 tribes, starting with Jeroboam, and all of these kings up in the north are apostate. They they essentially change the Bible. It's a very syncretistic worship. God is super patient with them. He sends them many prophets. We've studied some of them in the minor prophets. But these 10 tribes in the north, they just won't listen. And about 200 years later, the Assyrians take the 10 tribes into captivity into Assyria. And Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, repopulates the north with this Jew-Gentile mix, Babylonian mix with Jews, that comes to be known as the Samaritans. We're going to see them in the book of Haggai. Well, Sennacherib comes down to Judah to exile the south as well, but Hezekiah gets on his knees and prays, and so the angel of the Lord slaughters 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in 701 B.C., and Sennacherib has to return change of powers. Babylon comes into power. And Judah, even though there are these few kind of bright lights, you have Hezekiah, you have Josiah who who repent and, and lead the nation in a time of restoration. They really never repent from the heart. And so God ultimately also exiles the south. And he does that through the Babylonians in three phases. It's 605 B.C., you have Daniel and the royal youth. Nebuchadnezzar brings them to Babylon. He's going to brainwash them and then establish them back in Jerusalem as his Babylonian rulers. Uh, But Israel is just so stiff-necked and stubborn, they won't go for that. He exiles then Ezekiel and a few other thousand Israelites uh, in 597 B.C. Israelites still don't listen. So finally, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and completely destroys it, destroys the temple, takes the ark away, and takes the people into exile, into Babylon. God, to fulfill his promise, the promise that he made through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, and many others, only allows that exile to last for seven years from the very start of the exile, from 605 with Daniel. And so the exile ends in 536 B.C. when Cyrus, God's servant, decrees that the Israelites can go back and rebuild the temple. Cyrus actually funds the whole project, gives them the gold and silver they need to go back and rebuild the temple. And they get there in 536 BC under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the heir of David, who's working as a governor, and through Joshua, the high priest. But, you know, it's a tough time because only about 50,000 Israelites return And things are difficult. They're not an independent nation anymore, right? Zerubbabel is the governor. He's subjugated under the authority of a Persian king. And though they do manage to restore the foundation of the temple in Ezra chapter 3, the people weep to realize how far they've fallen after the exile, right? I mean, the gold and the splendor of Solomon's temple are gone. The ark is who knows where. The Shekinah glory never returns after Ezekiel sees it walk away before the exile. Then persecution arises from the Samaritans, who don't like the fact that this new nation is kind of building up. And then things get really bad, because Persia chimes in and sides with the Samaritans. And so Israel actually stops constructing the temple, because of a government mandate from Persia. You're wondering if history ever repeats itself. So essentially, God blesses the Israelites. He returns them to the land. But then they stop worshiping him. They stop building the temple. And over time, they start to forget him. They start to prioritize other things. And just like Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord blesses them. And then what happens? They forget. And they disobeyed for 16 years. Haggai comes and speaks to them in 520 B.C., 16 years after they got back to the land, where they're growing more and more indifferent, more and more apathetic towards the things of God. God starts to discipline them. He starts to apply the the curses of Deuteronomy 28 to them, drought and famine and poverty, but they just won't listen. And it's such an applicable book to us because we do the exact same thing, do we not? Just like Israel, the Lord blesses us and he gives us all these wonderful things. And then we start to focus on those gifts and then we start to forget the giver. We get comfortable. We start to prioritize other things and we forget. We fall into sin. Oftentimes we fall into the same sin of our past. The sins that beset us before Christ over the same pride, the same lust, same sins. And over and over, we feel ashamed. But it's, it's God's word that needs to come to us and, and sort of shake us and awaken us from our apathy and teach us to worship God, to give us a re- renewed zeal, a renewed focus, to make it our ambition to worship God. And this is what God raises up Haggai to do. God raises up Haggai to, to shake the people, to remind them to worship God and that nothing else is more important. Now, for those of you who were with us for three weeks in the book of Zephaniah, it's interesting, from what I can tell, there could not have been two more different type of preachers than Zephaniah and Haggai. Right? Zephaniah was high emotion. He often spoke in extremes. He went from, you're all going to burn, to Yahweh's going to sing over you in like two verses. He's just full volume all the time. It's loud from start to finish. It's a masterfully crafted prophecy. And Haggai, on the other hand, he he never raises his voice. He hardly ever uses commands. He just asks the people five times, consider your ways. Consider your life. Think about what you're doing. And what's fascinating to me is that nobody listened to the great preacher Zephaniah. I mean, Zephaniah was faithful, but nobody listened to him. They all disobeyed, they all ignored him, and they all went into exile. And everybody listened to Haggai. The entire nation repents and starts building the temple. And it's just such a clear reminder to me that it's not the preacher that matters. It's not the homiletics. It's about the power of the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God to save those that he has determined to save. And Haggai mentions this over and over and over in his little book. The entire book of Haggai is the second smallest book in the Old Testament. The book of Haggai only has 38 verses. And in 38 verses, Haggai says 25 times at least the word of Yahweh came. Thus says Yahweh. I'm a messenger of Yahweh with a mes- message from Yahweh. You're going to see it. It's so redundant. It's so repetitive. It's so intentional. It's purposeful. He emphasizes over and over this is not his message. Haggai knew that only the word of God can awake us from apathy. Only the word of God can cause us to repent and to worship him. And so he wanted to remind his audience over and over it's about the word of God. Haggai, if you're taking notes, in this first chapter gives us three truths to help us never forget to prioritize worship. Three truths to help us forget to never, prior, help us never forget to prioritize worship. First, he tells us to consider your misplaced priorities, consider your misplaced priorities, then to consider your lack of blessing, and finally to consider your source of strength. I'll be repeating that outline. Let's, uh, let's read the first five verses and just kind of get a sense of where we're going. Remember, Haggai is the first prophet to speak to Israel after returning to the land. Zechariah is going to join him just about two months into his ministry. But for now, this is the first word of God to the remnant. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the first five verses. Father, as we come once again to your word, we beg that your spirit would change us. We know it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by your spirit that you work. So we beg that your spirit would illuminate our minds, sanctify us and change us, grant us repentance, and that we would worship you tonight. You are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, or Darius, some people say. The second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, This people says, The time has not come even the time for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. And the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies waste? So now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Set your heart to consider your ways. I was asking myself, when I was asked to preach this book a couple weeks ago, I mean, could there be a more perfect time in the history of Grace Church to preach the book of Haggai? I mean, is it time for you to sit on your leather sofas in your paneled hardwood houses while this sanctuary lies carpetless? (laughs) My people sit on plastic chairs. I mean, if we had bad theology, this would be the time, right? to manipulate you all into giving toward our building project. But no, the book of Haggai is not about construction. The book of Haggai is about worship. It's about the necessity of worship. The the temple was the center of Yahweh worship in Israel, in the Old Covenant. No temple meant that the remnant did not care about worshiping Yahweh. And there is... Nothing more essential in this universe than the worship of Yahweh. So Haggai tells them first, consider your misplaced priorities. A lot going on here in verse 1. See, Haggai places this prophecy in the second year of Darius. Uh, Just for clarification, this is not Darius the Mede that we meet in Daniel. This is a later Darius, Darius Histospes. And his second year places us once again in 520 BC, 16 years after Israel's return. Also, our Gregorian calendar runs about three and a half months after there. So when he says that this prophecy came on the first day of the sixth month, that places us ex- exactly on, uh, on August 29th, 520 BC. It's pretty amazing that we know the exact day of this prophecy. I mean, this is, this is history. This happened at a time in history. And also because we know the exact day, we know that it was a feast day, a day of one of the Israelites' annual feasts. And I think that's deliberate. The name Haggai in Hebrew actually means feast. And his next prophecy in Haggai 2, verse 1, also occurs on a feast day. It's really the ideal time to address the nation. All the faithful have gathered together to to celebrate this feast. But what really jumps out at you, if if we've been reading the minor prophets like we have been, is that Haggai is the very first prophet in the entire Old Testament who dates his prophecy with the reign of a Gentile king. And so he's been in the days of King Uzziah, or in the days of Hezekiah, or the days of Josiah. We're hit up front in the book of Haggai with the reality that we're now in the time of the Gentiles, as Jesus calls it in Luke 21. Israel has no king. The king reigning over the area of Israel is Persian. And that's jarring if you're reading this as an Israelite at the time. The other thing, as we continue here, is that it says that the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai. And I love how Haggai emphasizes that, the the wording there that, that emphasizes the origin of his message. Haggai is just a messenger. This word is a message from Yahweh to his people. Haggai is just the herald. And notice, God is directing this prophecy specifically at Israel's leaders, that they're civic and religious leaders. First it says, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor. And again, it's like, <laughs> it's like God is digging in a little bit there. I mean, this hurts to, to, to see this, to hear this, to read this. Zerubbabel is David's heir Zerubbabel is in the line of the Messiah. You can see his name in Matthew chapter one. He's the great grandson of King Josiah, but he's no king. He's the governor. In fact, to remind us of how bad things are, his father named him Zerubbabel. Literally translated, his name means "begotten of Babylon." Right, born in exile, born in captivity. Then Joshua, the high priest, the, the leader of the religious work of the temple. He's the son of Jehosadak. Jehoshadak was the high priest that was deported with the people in 1 Chronicles 6. Interesting that, that God singles out these two leaders. The context, as we read it, will indicate that all of Israel is implicated in this sin. All of Israel is commanded to repent. But... God holds these leaders especially responsible uh, because it's the governor and the high priest that really would have had authority over the construction of the temple. Now, what is God's message? Verse two, thus says Yahweh of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. That phrase, Yahweh of hosts, we've seen it before, speaks to God's authority. Yahweh, the captain of the host of angel armies, he's the one speaking. Haggai uses this title 14 times in his little book. Again, Haggai doesn't need to raise his voice because <laughs> he's speaking on behalf of Yahweh of hosts. Right? You don't need to obey Haggai because Haggai's some important person. <laughs> you need to obey Haggai. What Haggai is saying because of who Haggai represents, who he's speaking for. It is Yahweh of hosts. And Yahweh begins his message, right? The first words of Yahweh to his people after they've returned from the land. Right, because we're kind of hoping, right? I mean. God sent them into exile to discipline them and purify them, change them. And, and they're going to return and they're going to be better. And, and God's going to be able to love them as his people. And the first words of Yahweh to Israel is this people. What a rebuke when Israel would have loved to hear what? Loved to have heard my people. My remnant. But now he addresses them as this people. This people says, another good reminder, God hears everything you say because he's here with us. He's here with us in L.A. He's here with them in Israel. And he was here with them when they were in Babylon. He's everywhere. Right. In Ezekiel's vision, God is sitting on a throne on top of wheels. Why? Because he's everywhere. He sees everything. He's got eyes coming out of these wheels. God's not out there, far away somewhere. He's here. He knows our sin. He hears our complaining. He knows what you're thinking. There's no hiding from him. David says, before the word is on my tongue, you know it all. What was their sin? They were saying, it's not time yet for the temple to be rebuilt. I mean... If you don't see yourself in Israel when you read the Old Testament, maybe we're just very different. It's like, man, we are just experts at making excuses, are we not? Experts at procrastination. You see, they recognize what's right. They know that the temple needs to be rebuilt at some point. They're not denying that. Someone needed to do it, but not them. Notice they don't even use the active voice. They don't say it's not, not, not time yet for us to rebuild the temple. They use the passive voice. It's not time for the temple to be rebuilt. That's someone else's responsibility for another time. It's not the right moment. Well, why not? Well, when we compare this with the book of Ezra, right, we know that there was there was persecution, there was government mandates, pretexts and excuses because God had commanded them to rebuild the temple. In the sense that The temple was necessary for Yahweh worship. They needed to rebuild it. Perhaps, I think being in the new covenant, we don't realize how essential the temple was. We don't realize how egregious of a sin it was to not rebuild the temple. The temple was the heart of all Israelite worship. The temple was where Yahweh manifested his presence. That's where Israel offered their sacrifices to Yahweh. They needed to rebuild the temple in order to worship Yahweh in the way that he prescribed. It was impossible for them to obey the Torah without the temple. Think about that. Think about how serious that sin is. And they say it's not time yet. I mean, nothing else is more important than this. The first thing that they should have done, their first and only priority, is to build the place where they could worship their God. To worship Yahweh. Nothing else is more important than worship. Their delay was rebellion against God. Obeying tomorrow, what God commands us today is defiance. And yet, are we not the same? A little persecution comes. God sends us a trial to strengthen our faith. And what do we say? We come up with all these Christian excuses. You know, I think, I think the Lord is closing that door. How many times have have you heard that? How many times have you said that? As if the trial, the difficulty were pretext to disobey. If Yahweh says do it, it doesn't matter what Persia says. If we have a clear command from heaven, no earthly argument is even relevant. It's always time to obey. Verse three, then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, saying, (laughs) notice the deliberate redundancy. He just said it. He repeats it. This is Yahweh's word. And Yahweh tears down their entire argument. Right? The Israelite excuse was, it's not time yet. (laughs) Yahweh says, verse four, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies waste? You is, is, is emphasized, it's you yourselves. I think focusing on Zerubbabel and on Joshua, but we'll see in the context, Haggai nine that they're all doing this. They're all running about building their own houses. And God is pointing out their pride and their selfishness, their self-centeredness. They say they don't have time for God, but clearly they have time and resources for themselves. They're living in their paneled houses. Now, what does that mean, paneled houses? Paneled for sure in that time denoted luxury. We see that in a few passages in Scripture. But, but the word paneled is actually not a very common word in the Old Testament. But let me, let me fill you in on a few times it occurs. Solomon's temple was paneled with cedar, the same word in First Kings 6. And more interesting, Solomon's own palace had even more cedar paneling, First Kings 7. Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, is rebuked and then exiled for his pride, manifested in his boasting about his paneled palace. We know that Haggai is thinking about that because that's quoted in Jeremiah 22, And Jeremiah 22 is on Haggai's mind. It'll be the culmination of his argument at the end of the book. So in a sense, Zerubbabel and Joshua have fallen into the exact same sin their fathers did. They've built their own temples. They've built their own houses, their own palaces. And they've neglected the place to worship Yahweh. God's house lied in waste. They... And the rest of Israel had taken their time and their money and invested it completely in themselves and not in God's kingdom. Waste is also, that word lies in waste is a very deliberate word choice. It's used both by Jeremiah and Ezekiel to describe Jerusalem during the exile. Uh, The idea is that when God exiled the people of Israel and they were in Babylon, the city of Jerusalem lied in waste and the idea here is that now the people have returned and they fixed up Jerusalem. They fixed up all their own houses. They fixed up everything except except the temple still lies in ways like nobody's home. It's in the same condition as when they weren't there. God's pointing out their lies, their hypocrisy. They had plenty of time. They had time for themselves, their jobs, their homes, their things, but supposedly no time to worship Yahweh. But again, there is nothing more essential in this universe than the worship of Yahweh. To not rebuild the temple was to disobey the most essential act of obedience in the Old Covenant, the command to worship Yahweh. And this affected not only Israel. You need to understand this infected the entire world, the entire earth. How? Remember, under the Old Covenant, God was blessing the people of Israel with material, physical prosperity. Why? Why was God blessing Israel with prosperity? Because they were a kingdom of priests to the nations. Right? God was blessing Israel, bringing prosperity upon Israel so that all the nations would come to Jerusalem, see the splendor of Yahweh's glory and worship him. Old Testament evangelism, if you want to think about it this way, Old Testament evangelism was essentially come and see. Come Jerusalem and see. Come see the temple. That's what Psalm 67 is all about. In Psalm 67, the psalmist says, Yahweh, bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us. Bring prosperity upon the land. Cause the land to flourish. Why? In order that your way may be known in all the world. So that your salvation may be known among all nations. God filled the physical temple with a manifestation of his glory to make himself known and worshipped among all peoples. You see why this is so important? With no temple, the center of Yahweh worship in the whole world was gone. Now, of course... It's hard for us to think about it in these terms because we're in such a different time, in a very different covenant. We've got to understand their situation before we can start to sort of apply it to us. Right? We know we're, we're in a different covenant now. New Testament evangelism is, is different for us. Evangelism is no longer come and see, now it's go and show. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. God now fills us, his temple, his church, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, to make himself known, again, among the nations. We're to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, everything we do, everywhere we go, ought to be an act of worship to make God's glory known among the nations, to be worshiped, not only individually as a work on our own sanctification, but corporately as a body. We've got to be building up his temple, the people of God, through evangelism, through edification. So the means by which we make the glory of Yahweh known is different today. Unfortunately, our sinful excuses are identical, (laughs) identical to the Israelites. They've not changed. Sure, our sin has a different flavor today. But the principle is the same. You insert the sin you are committing because you're prioritizing you above Yahweh. It's not time yet to tell my neighbor about Christ. It's not time yet for me to be baptized. I don't have time for prayer. I'm too busy to read my Bible every day. I've got too much going on right now to be discipling that younger believer. And God would say to you, Well, apparently you've got time for TV and you've got time for sports and recreation and lots of other things. No, apparently it's not a time issue. You're just using all your discretionary time on you, right? What you lack is not time. What you lack is zeal for the worship of my great name. And we need to listen. We need to hear Haggai's rebuke. We need to stir up our hearts. And abandon this complacency that lives so often in our hearts and command our souls: bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is in, within me, bless his holy name. We must prioritize worship above all things. Worship is more important than the air we breathe and the food we drink, food we eat, and the water we drink. And if that sounds like hyperbole to you. That worship is more important than the air you breathe. You've forgotten that the only reason air exists, the only reason food exists, the only reason water exists is so that you can worship Yahweh, the one who created you and created those things. This is not hyperbole. Jesus says, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Those are secondary issues. Those are tertiary issues to Jesus. Seek first his kingdom. Yahweh demands first place. That's why we sing thou and thou only first in my heart because we want so desperately for that to be true. But it's not as often as we'd like. So verse 5, thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. Consider what you're doing. Think about your life. What are your priorities? Are you neglecting Bible reading? Neglecting prayer? Demonstrating that Yahweh is not first in your life? Try this. Remove all the excuses you normally give. Consider, if you had all the time in the world and all the money in the world to do whatever you wanted to do for a month, What would that month look like for you? Would Yahweh worship be at the center of that? Is he what you most treasure? Because if not, then you need to repent. Because nothing is more important for you than to worship Yahweh. We need to repent, pursue God, and ask him to help us prioritize worship. Consider your misplaced priorities. Second, consider your lack of blessing. Verse six. You have sown much, but bring in little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. Consider what's happening to you. You're working harder but having a harder time paying the bills. You sow but reap little. You eat but don't feel full. Your bank account your bank account has a hole in it. <laughs> Essentially what he's saying, right? He says consider your ways. Now, what were they to consider? What's the conclusion that God was hoping that they'd come to? Well, I think when a One of the more vital chapters in the Old Testament to understand the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just note it down. We're not going to go there. I'll sum it up for you. It's a long chapter. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God outlines the blessings and the curses. Blessings for covenant obedience and curses for covenant disobedience. Now, important, these curses and blessings apply to the nation as a whole, not necessarily to individuals. So if Isaiah is righteous, that doesn't guarantee that he's going to be prosperous in everything he does, because the blessings and the curses are for the nation. Well, what are these blessings and curses? Well, in the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 28, God outlines the blessings for obedience, victory over enemies, health, plentiful harvest, prosperity, rain, just blessing in abundance. And unfortunately for the Israelites, we don't see much of this in the Old Testament because they very rarely obey, (laughs) right? So they don't get a lot of these blessings. What we do see a lot of is the second part of Deuteronomy 28 that outlines the curses for disobedience. It essentially describes a history of Israel. If you disobey, just to mention a few to get the flavor of them, if you disobey, Yahweh will send pestilence and disease. If you don't repent and you continue to disobey, Yahweh will shut up the heavens so it won't rain. There'll be drought. If you don't repent and you disobey, God will make the ground bronze so that you won't reap a harvest. There'll be famine. If you still refuse to repent, Yahweh will send locusts to devour anything left. If you still refuse to repent, God will put your cities under siege. If you still refuse to repent, you're going to eat your own children in that siege. And if you still refuse to repent, the children you don't eat, are going to go off to captivity. Does that remind you of anything? Because it should remind you of essentially the book of Kings. I mean, it's, it's basically like the history of Israel. It's a play-by-play recap that God told them that was going to happen if they didn't obey. And now here's the point. Why does God tell them ahead of time? Why does God list these curses? So that when any of those things happen, Israel would stop and consider Wait, there's locusts in the land? That's a covenant curse. If the Lord is disciplining us with a covenant curse, it must mean that I'm being disciplined for covenant disobedience. I need to repent that I might receive the blessing. But Deuteronomy 28, 38 was certainly in Haggai's mind. when he's, Moses writes, You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little. And God is saying, consider Think about why that is. God's disciplining you. Repent, so you'll receive blessing. And and what would repentance look like for them? Verse eight. Haggai two. It. Give me Haggai one eight. Haggai one eight, Go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the house of God that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. Says Yahweh. It's the essentially the only physical action required in this entire book. The only sort of Imperative to do something. Just obey. Just build the temple. Like right now. Not, not tomorrow. Obey now. Now, really interesting. Back in Ezra chapter 1, we read that Cyrus already gave them the money to rebuild the temple. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, we see they already purchased the timber for the temple and had it Ordered this all happened 16 years ago that they bought the wood for the temple. So when I read here in verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood to rebuild the temple of God, I think, hmm, the fact that they got to go get more wood, what does that imply? It implies they use the temple timber to build their own houses, which is probably why their own houses are paneled like the temple was supposed to be. And now, because of their disobedience, they're going to have to do double the work. They got to go up to the mountains and fell the timber. That's always the case. Sin doubles, triples, quadruples our workload. God tells them, but just do it. Do the hard work. Build the temple. I mean, honestly, for 50,000 people, building one building should not have taken 16 years, right? Shouldn't have been that big of a deal. So God just says, do it that I might be pleased. And glorify. Now, that first word, pleased, is the word used in the Old Testament for, for Yahweh to accept a sacrifice. It's used three times in Malachi 1 in this sense. The, the, the temple is the means by which Israel offered sacrifice to God. And that was what pleased him. Remember, we're, we're sinners. Every human being is a sinner. And the only way that we can draw near to God, the only way we can please God, is through blood, through sacrifice to atone for our sins. You remember Hebrews chapter 10, we draw near to God through the blood of Christ. That's the only way to please God. And and that should be the, the chief desire of every believer, our chief ambition to please the Lord. Not only that, Haggai says, not only do we need the right motive to please the Lord, we also need to glorify the Lord. We need to show the world that Yahweh is worthy of worship. Remember the word glory in Hebrew just means heavy because worth was measured in those days through the weight of silver and gold. And Yahweh is of infinite worth and therefore is worthy of infinite worship. And the idea is that you need to show my worth by obeying me. Now, to understand this today, obviously we don't worship God in a physical temple. We worship him everywhere and at all times, right? Pastor MacArthur read to us this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And again, it's not the come and see Old Testament model anymore. We're not showing off the material blessings of the Old Covenant. We're not living in a theocracy with Yahweh as our King. Now it's go and show the world my worth is the way that we glorify him. All right, it's still the same principle that we need to show the world the worth and the glory of Yahweh. Whether we realize it or not, we do this at every moment of every day that we live. We show whether Yahweh is a God that's worth treasuring. Maybe you do that when when the world sees you and your family driving to church, singing hymns happily in the car to Jesus. Maybe, Maybe it's when they see a believer who's lost everything. And he's recently been in a car wreck and his face is all bloodied and bruised and he's on the bus. Reading his Bible with a smile. And the guy sitting next to him is thinking, man, my life is hard like that guy, but I don't got joy like that guy. And so he asks, what's your secret? And now that Christian gets to show the infinite worth of God and say, Jesus is my joy. You can take away all this world, but give me Jesus. He is everything to me. His cross is my salvation. His kingdom is my only hope. His love, my greatest reward. I've lost nothing that I need. But when we don't do that, when we disobey God, every act of disobedience communicates that he's not worthy of our worship. He's not worthy of our allegiance, which is evil. It's an evil that that God hates. It's not right. It is right for Yahweh to be worshipped because he is worthy. It is the worst injustice, the worst evil in the world when Yahweh does not receive the glory that is due his name. And so he disciplines. Verse 9, you look for much. But behold, it comes to little. You bring it home and I blow it away. Why? Declares Yahweh of hosts. Because of my house, which lies waste. While each of you runs to his own house. I blow it away. Discipline is a direct act of God. Now, little theology. That's not to say that all suffering is a direct result of a specific sin. We don't want to fall into the error of Job's friends or the disciples in John 9. But as believers, oftentimes, it is the case. As believers, when we live in unrepentant sin, we will face God's discipline. And God was disciplining them because they would not finish the temple. Even though it says they run to their own houses. The idea is that they're eager. They're eager to work on their own houses, their own pursuits, but not God's. And once again, the point is, is that what we value is reflected in our actions. It rains in Los Angeles and attendance drops at church. Hmm. Do you go to the supermarket when it rains? So what does that tell me? It tells us which food you value most. Jesus says, my food is to to obey, to do the will of my Father. What we value is revealed in our actions. And God's point is, okay, when you choose poorly, when you prioritize things that are not right, that are not good for you, then you're going to know it by the pain you feel on your backside. (laughs) Because I'm going to discipline you. And my discipline means you're doing something wrong. Verse 10, therefore, because of you... The sky has restrained its dew and the earth has restrained its produce. I called for drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. Again, the the Deuteronomy 28 curses. I brought drought, famine. So Haggai calls on the people to consider their discipline. Consider why they lacked God's blessing. And be motivated to repent so that the discipline would go away. And we too, when we are disciplined, when we suffer, we need to ask ourselves, Lord, is there something that I need to change in my life? Obviously, we don't live under the old covenant. We're not under the material blessings or curses. Obviously, we do not face suffering in every instance as a result of some specific sin. But sometimes it is. Maybe it's a current sin, like we heard about this morning when the Corinthians, right? God made them sick for getting drunk at the Lord's table. Maybe maybe it's a future sin, like Paul who received a thorn in his flesh to protect him from being prideful. But every time we face God's disciplining hand, we need to turn to him and thank him, Hebrews 12. God disciplines us, why? Because he loves us because he's making us to share in his holiness Hebrews 12:10. He's disciplining us to get us back into the word, to get us back into fellowship, back into worshiping him because that's what makes us more like Jesus and that's what's best for us. That's our best good. He disciplines us to get us back to joyful worship. Remember David? He said when he had unconfessed sin his life was terrible. God's hand was heavy upon him. He groaned all the day long. He lost the joy of his salvation. And it's God's discipline that brought him back. So don't be discouraged by your discipline. Be encouraged. Your discipline proves you're a child of Yahweh. Right? That's Hebrews 12. God disciplines his children. The worst thing. The absolute worst thing that God can do to a person, what is it, Romans 1 and 2? To give them over to their sin. To let them sin with no restraint. God says to the unbeliever, you want to sin? Have at it. And they heap up wrath for the day of judgment. That's awful. God won't do that with you if you're a Christian. If you're his child, he's going to discipline you. So when you're disciplined, thank him for it and repent. And learn. Let it turn you back to worship. Last truth to consider and motivate us to worship. Consider your source of strength. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listened to the voice of Yahweh their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people feared Yahweh. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, they all listened. They obeyed. They repented. They took responsibility for their sin from the top leader on down. Right? I mean, that's why we pray for our president, 1 Timothy 2, right? Because God can save him. God can save anyone he wants to. And it's also important that, that Haggai mentions Zerubbabel and Joshua here specifically, because it's important to note that even during this nationwide revival, at the end of the day, repentance is individual. Individuals need to repent. And that's what causes a revival. These two men repented, and then others followed their example. And God granted them repentance as well. And then notice, they go from being called this people, the beginning of the book, now to being called the remnant who listened to the voice of Yahweh, their God. What an encouragement to be called the remnant. God is fulfilling the promise he made through Jeremiah that the exile would last 70 years. I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29, 11, to return you to the land. He promised through Isaiah that Cyrus would declare the return. He promised through Zephaniah that a remnant would return. And now they hear that word for the first time. I mean, the remnant, the remnant is the one that's going to receive and inherit the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. They must have thought, maybe that's us. Spoiler alert, they don't persevere in their obedience. And so Haggai is going to talk about the Messiah, the coming king at the end of his book. But for now, right? I mean, they've repented. They fear the Lord. To fear Yahweh in the Old Testament is essentially just to believe in him, right? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of everything. You have to believe that he is, that he's holy, that he hates sin. And so it's to be feared. That's where repentance always begins. Verse 13, then Haggai The messenger of Yahweh spoke by the commissioned message of Yahweh to the people saying, I am with you, declares Yahweh. Again, so incredibly emphatic. Haggai is the messenger of Yahweh who's speaking Yahweh's message that Yahweh is declaring. Another reminder, it's the word of God that works repentance. But it's also very interesting because this phrase, the messenger of Yahweh, is almost exclusively used in the Old Testament as a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. It's typically translated the angel of Yahweh. Angel with a capital A. If you're unfamiliar with this truth, you can check out Exodus 3 or Genesis 16 or the many other texts in which the phrase is used. The angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, the word of Yahweh is Christ and is worshipped in the Old Testament. So why does Haggai use the term? Well, I think in much the same way that Isaiah sees himself as a servant of Yahweh, even though the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah is Jesus, Haggai sees himself as a messenger of Yahweh, even though he understands who the messenger of Yahweh is. Because Haggai's doing what Jesus does. Right? He's giving the message of Yahweh. And what's the message? It's simple. I am with you. I am with you. That's the message. What an encouragement. And even more so, because think about this, right? Here in Haggai, Israel starts to rebuild the temple. They start to fulfill what we call the Old Testament Great Commission, right? To, To show the glory of God to the world. Their unfinished task was to build the temple. And as they start to do this, the word of Yahweh comes to them and says, I am with you to enable you to fulfill this commission. And in Matthew 28, when the word of Yahweh, that is Jesus, gives his new covenant commission, go and show our unfinished task of evangelism to build the church, which Paul calls God's temple. Jesus encourages us with the exact same words. Lo, I am with you. All authority, all power is mine to enable you to complete my commission. Same words, same God, same strength, same promise. I am with you. So consider, consider the source of your strength to obey. Yahweh is with you. What does that produce? Verse fourteen. So Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and they did work on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. It's a twenty-three day delay. Between the moment, Haggai starts prophesying prophesying until the work is started. We don't know exactly why 23 days. Maybe Haggai preached for 23 days until they repented. Maybe they listened right away and it took them 23 days to, to get the wood up on the mountains and bring it down to start. We don't know for sure, but the text doesn't present this as sinful, right? Haggai preached, the people listened, and they got to work. But the question is why? Why did they repent? Why were they able to work? And it's found at the beginning of verse 14. Yahweh stirred them up. Yahweh stirred them up, led them to repentance. Listen to a few texts where that language is used. Deuteronomy thirty-two, eleven, describing the Exodus. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Yahweh carries his people out of Egypt and stirs up their growth like an eagle stirring its nest. Ezra one one. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, obviously to send them back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And now Yahweh stirs them up again to finish the task. Yahweh stirs them to carry them out of Egypt. He stirs them to bring them out of Babylon to rebuild the temple. And now he's stirring them up again to obedience so that they can worship him. We know this is the work of the Spirit of Yahweh. Haggai's going to explain that in Haggai 2.5, My Spirit is with you. We know Zechariah 4.6, It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my Spirit. Repentance is a work of God. It's a work granted by God, 2 Timothy 2.25. Remember, their sin is apathy. Their sin is indifference. And so what does God do? He stirs them up. His Spirit enables them. Now, just to be absolutely clear, this obedience is not earning their salvation, right? Our works do nothing to justify us before God. But as believers, we strive to work out the good works that God is working in us. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.12. Israel needed to work out what God was working in. God was stirring in them to will and to do. But they needed to walk in those good works, right? I mean, Yahweh wasn't going to fell the trees for them. Yahweh wasn't going to stack the stones for them. They needed to do that. And so if you need to repent tonight, this is what you need to pray for. That God would stir up your heart to obey him. A desire to honor him. If you've come to church tonight and you're struggling with some sin, perhaps feeling like you're never going to experience victory over some vice. Never going to feel the the freedom From that sin. Consider the source of your strength. It is Almighty God who promises to be with his people, to provide them the strength they need to repent and obey. He grants repentance, He gives power to change if we will listen to his word. Of course, we like Zerubbabel need to do the work. Repentance is not a passive thing. You have to do the hard work of felling the trees and stacking the stones. You have to kill your sin. You have to replace that sin with righteous habits that God promises to give you the strength. So beg him for it. Trust him for it and repent. If I can just conclude reading a, verse, a couple of verses in the book of Deuteronomy. Because Haggai's quoting from Deuteronomy 32 throughout his book. Moses is concluding the Torah. He's finished writing the law. And in Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-five, it says this. Then Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, place in your heart. Now that's the exact phrase Haggai quotes five times in his book. Set your heart to consider. Moses says, set your heart to consider all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to do. Be careful to do even all the words of this law. Verse 47, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. That's Haggai's message. The word of God is not an idle word. It is your life. Obey it and there will be joy and blessing. Disobey it and there will be discipline. So consider your misplaced priorities. If you have time to breathe, you have time to worship. Consider your lack of blessing. If you're being disciplined, God is trying to help you worship him, to return to your first love, and consider your source of strength. God is with those who repent, and he will give you strength to worship him. There's so many more ways that we could apply this book. We'll see more in chapter 2. But perhaps the, the most important, right, is that you cannot worship God without Jesus. Jesus. You can't even go into God's presence without Jesus. You're a sinner. You deserve hell. And you only gain access to worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. No one gets into the Holy of Holies without a blood sacrifice. You need to draw near to God through Jesus, through faith in his death and his resurrection. You cannot worship and neglect the building up, the edifying of his current temple, the church. If you don't care for his temple, you will face discipline. Romans 12, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you don't worship God with it, there can be no blessing. Right? Everything in Haggai comes back to worship, to worshiping God. Use all your resources, all your strength, all your might to worship. And remember Haggai's recipe to get you there, the word of God. Only the word of God can stir you up to repent and worship. Yahweh, memorize it, love it, and you will worship the one it exalts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which stirs us to obey. Thank you for your spirit who enables us to obey. Thank you for Jesus for purchasing our redemption and our obedience. And thank you, Father, for choosing us to worship you. You are worthy. Amen.